This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Okay, so I'm going to start with Aquinas. That seems like the place to start. And I'm going to start, uh, really, I'm just going to start where we left off last time, which is, you know, yes, yesterday we talked about natures and ends and goods and natural inclinations and um, natural telos and fulfillment. Um, all of that is still apropos. All of that is still the foundation for everything that's going to be said today. Um, in the um, Prima Secundae questions one through five, sometimes that's called the truth on happiness. Uh, it's a fine title because all of those questions are about man's final end, his happiness. And I want to look at a couple of things that Aquinas says there about contemplation. It turns out that man's happiness consists in contemplation. Um, that is the highest good. That is the best thing you can be doing, both in terms of imperfect happiness, the sort of chancy, dicey, incomplete happiness that you can have in this life. Uh, but it's also true for perfect happiness, right? The attitude. So I'm starting with um, question two, article seven, whether some good of the soul constitutes man's happiness. Um, well, actually, no, let me go back. <laughs> question one, article five. Um, this is really, again, I talked about this yesterday, but I'm just sort of reminding you um, that Aquinas thinks, and I, I believe correctly, so I've written some scholarly articles um, cashing this out for a contemporary audience, but I, I believe he argues correctly that human acts have to have a single constitutive end, right? So that would be an end that both defines them as the thing that they are, as a, as a properly human act, um, and that it also provides a measure, right? Um, so it's a human act if it's constitutively aimed at happiness, and it's a good human act if it's actually properly ordered to the attainment of that constitutive defining end. Um, and Aquinas sort of dwells on why he thinks it's necessary for there to be a single end. Um, the first reason he gives is just that everything desires its own perfection um, and we're no different. And the last end is that which perfects the human person. Um, and in particular, what he focuses on um, is that the last end is what fulfills man's appetite. So he really stresses that if you attain this formal and defining end, there will be nothing left for you to desire, right? And that seems really different from our normal experience of desire, right? Um, like you're hungry, you eat some food and you're satisfied and then lo, five hours later you're hungry again, it's very annoying. Um, so, you know, however you navigate that, but you're, you, you're just going to keep feeling hungry, right? You're going to keep feeling thirsty. Um, and of course we develop the virtues to regulate these appetites, but you're still going to experience them. Um, and also when it comes to the appetite of the human person, the will, um, you're always uh, wanting things in the rational sort of way, 
right? Um, and this is true, like, and even when you get what you want, um, you're still not totally satisfied, right? So it doesn't matter how much of your rational desires get satisfied in this life, um, there's still more left for you to want, right? Because the object of the will is the universal good. Um, and you're never going to exhaust that. <laughs> uh, you're never going to exhaust that in this life, right? Um, but the thing that interests me is the characterization of it as filling, filling, totally satisfying, filling man's appetite, appetite of will. Um, so whatever, whatever is going to be the object of happiness, it's going to do that, right? Um, and then, you know, I mean, Aquinas just has this basic commitment that nature, metaphysically speaking, has to be ordered towards a single unifying end, right? Um, and we're ordered to that single unifying end through the will. Um, and he also says, and again, this is sort of picking up from last time, the last end has the nature of a first principle. And just to review something that I said last time, how that works in the moral life, and when we think about the nature of the will as a human capacity, as a rational appetite, is that the last end, or the desire for the universal good, or the desire for happiness, um, is really the condition for the possibility of practical reasoning, which is reasoning for an end. If practical reason didn't have a single unifying end that governed its work, it wouldn't have anything to do, right? It wouldn't have a point or purpose or goal. And um, in terms of the capacity for rational desire, right, there has to be um, some ordering unifying end, right? Call that the universal good. That's the object of the will. That has the nature of a first principle. It what make it's what makes right uh, deliberation <clears throat> and choice possible. Okay, and he also says that good, which is the last end, <clears throat> is the perfect good fulfilling the desire, and man desires the universal good. Um, and then this is the first quote on your handout at two point seven. Uh, this is the question whether some good of the soul constitutes man's happiness. Um, and, and basically he says, well, this is like typical Aquinas, uh, he's sort of like yes and no. Um, so he comes around to the idea that man attains his happiness through his soul, right? Through the exercise of his capacities of soul, mainly intellect and will. Um, and so happiness belongs to the soul in that sense, right? But that which constitutes happiness, that in which happiness consists, must be something outside the soul. It must be something that transcends completely the human soul in order to perfectly actualize or fulfill it, right? So the good of man is something beyond man. Um, and that seems uh, really important to his view. Um, so he has a view of happiness in which transcendence is key. 
And um, <clears throat> I think this is really important because I don't, I don't really know what y'all are majoring in or, or who you're interacting with at the university, but if you head on over to the empirical sciences, <laughs> so psychology and economics and sociology, um, you'll find a lot of work on happiness that defines happiness um, as just a matter of the soul. They won't use the word soul, but they basically just think about it in terms of psychological satisfaction, right? So it's, it's subjectivism, basically. And there are a bunch of varieties of subjectivism. Some are um, slightly more sophisticated than others, but at the end of the day, what happiness is really for all of these disciplines um, is just a certain psychological condition that you might be in for a period of time or you might not be in, right? And it's a positive psychological condition. So it's like feeling good and maybe on some theories it's like feeling good and also thinking that it's good that you feel good. <laughs> but at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's really about uh, the way that you feel and I think this is a, a disaster because if that's how we define happiness or if that's how we allow people to define happiness for the purposes of study and like saying things about it um, and eventually making a lot of money off of what they're saying about it uh, in order to help people. If we have just a totally subjective account of happiness, right, then we get locked into a view where happiness is a private thing, right? It's just a matter of your private individual psychology. Doesn't really matter uh, what's going on with reality. Um, and in fact, when I went to Yale in 2018 and I had this um, debate or dialogue with a really famous psychology professor there, um, you know, I finally just asked her, well, like, on your view of happiness, the way that you describe happiness, one, I don't understand how it has any connection with the moral life. And she's like, yeah, it really doesn't. So really, it's just always a choice. Like, should I be good or should I be happy? Right? You just you just have to choose because they're different, right? Um, you know, if you're a student at Yale, right? Should I be just or should I be happy? Um, and they just don't really have much to do with one another, it turns out, on the subjectivist picture. But even more dramatically, like, so I asked this professor, I said, well, look, on your view, I don't see why we couldn't be perfectly happy in a completely virtual reality scenario. So you can imagine some kind of virtual reality machine where your brain's being manipulated, manipulated so that you experience all and only pleasurable affect, however you construe it. And you can even make it the case, because it's a philosophy experiment, you can even make it the case that cognitively, like you think it's real, it seems real. A lot of virtual, you know, it's just really sophisticated virtual reality. So it seems real. On your view of happiness, right, that just get in that machine and never get out, right? It doesn't matter that everything you experience isn't real. It doesn't matter on your view. And she was like, yeah. And then I asked her, I was like, would you get in that machine? And she was like, yeah. And I'm like, that's messed up. <laughs> you, 
like that's just a rejection of life. You're a life hater. Anyway, I was very upset by this. Um, it's upsetting. So anyway, this is why transcendence is important. Um, and for, I mean, I'm not going to get into the details, but just to mention, like for Aquinas, yeah, of course there's a subjective component to happiness, right? No doubt. Um, but there's also an objective component, right? Um, and when we talk about true happiness or authentic happiness or any sort of happiness actually worth seeking, let alone ordering your entire life around, when we talk about true or authentic happiness, um, we're talking about when your subjective condition aligns with objective reality. That is to say, when, it, when you delight, when it feels good, when you delight, because you actually have communion with what is really and truly good, that's happiness, right? That's what you want. Um, and that's what Aquinas is talking about. Um, okay, so then Aquinas, uh, you know, is going along in his argument, and um, he wants to ask the question, um, well, okay, what could perfectly satisfy the will of a human being, if that's how I've defined happiness, whatever it is, it would totally fulfill you as a human person. Um, and then he wants to know, well, would it be an uncreated good? Or would it be a created good? Is there any created good that can totally satisfy you? And again, he's Aquinas, so the answer is yes and no. <laughs> um, so on the one hand, the answer is no. Um, what will make you totally happy is, is possession of an uncreated good, namely God. God is not created. God is the source of creation. Um, so what's going to perfectly satisfy you is possession of God, and that's an uncreated good. But your um, experience of that, your enjoyment of that, your delight in that is a created good, right? Because your soul is created. And like I just said, um, it is through um, the complete actualization of your essentially rational capacities, your capacity for intellect and will, that you come uh, to know and love God in a perfect way, um, that's created, right? And then Aquinas says, look, like in perfect happiness, what's going on is that man, the mind of a human person um, will be united to God by one continual everlasting operation, right? Um, so in, in this life, and, and here he draws on Aristotle, um, Aristotle says, we call men happy, but only as men, right? But God has promised us perfect happiness when we shall be as the angels in heaven, right? Nevertheless, this is Aquinas arguing, contemplation in this life is a participation in this happiness, and so much the greater as the operation can be more continuous and more one. Consequently, the active life, which is busy with many things, has less of happiness than the contemplative life, which is busy with one thing, the contemplation of truth, um, so Aquinas makes a distinction 
again, following Aristotle between the contemplative life and the active life. Um, and he thinks that uh, the contemplative life is um, happier, more happy. Um, and we'll, we'll talk in a bit about how he understands the relationship between the contemplative life and the active life, which is something that, of course, the pagan philosophers were obsessed with trying to figure out. Um, okay, Aquinas also says that contemplation in this life is a kind of participation or a kind of foretaste um, of the sort of contemplation that constitutes your beatitude. Um, and and that's, that's actually, um, that, that's its value, right? That is this kind of foretaste of heaven. So this is um, question three, article two, um, reply four. Right, um, that's the one that I just read, sorry. Okay, so man's happiness, Aquinas argues, consists in the knowledge of God, which is an act of the intellect, right? Um, however, and again, this is sort of me reviewing what I said yesterday, um, you cannot, um, you cannot really think of the intellect totally apart from the will. Um, or our affections, um, because you cannot love, right, what you don't know, right? So if you're going to desire anything or love anything, you must first know the thing. And in particular, you must know it insofar as it is appetable or desirable, or what is the exact same thing for Aquinas as good, right? You have to cognize it or judge it as worthy of pursuit, right? As the thing to go after, the thing to strive for. Um, and so whenever we're talking about contemplation as a perfection of the intellect, um, which it is, um, we cannot um, neglect or uh, forget to pay attention to the fact that this has um, this has an effect also on the will. Um, so if we look at question three, article four, um, this is on your handout. As for the very essence of happiness, it is impossible for it to consist in an act of the will. So this is a little tricky. I think this gets confusing for students because on the one hand, Aquinas says happiness is the fulfillment of the will. Look, that's how he starts off defining it. And then he says, but it's not an act of the will. So what's going on? Happiness is the attainment of the last end, but the attainment at the end does not consist in the very act of the will. For the will is directed to the end, both absent when it desires it, right? You desire it when it's not when you don't have it, and present when it is delighted by resting therein, right? Um, so it's the different kind of movement between yearning towards and delighting or resting in. While delight comes to the will from the end being present and not conversely is a thing made present by the fact that the will delights in it. For first we desire to attain an intelligible end we attain it through its being made present to us by an act of the intellect. And then the delighted will rests 
in the end when attained. So therefore, the essence of happiness consists in an act of the intellect, possession of the truth in its fullness, the vision of God. Um, so happiness consists in an act of intellect, but the delight that results from the happiness pertains to the will, right? In this sense, Augustine says that happiness is joy in the truth, because joy itself is the consummation of happiness. So hopefully there you begin to see how, um, how it is that um, contemplation can, contemplation of the highest object um, can at one and the same time be an act of the intellect, a perfection of the intellect, but also that which fulfills the will, right? As the capacity, the rational capacity for desire. Um, okay. I suppose the only other thing I'm going to say about that is that, um, you know, the proper object of the intellect is the true, right? So when you have knowledge, um, what's going on with you is that there is an adequation between your intellect, whatever act of the intellect we're talking about, it, it doesn't really matter, and being or reality, the way things are. Right, so the so when the mind conforms itself to reality, um, right, that's that's the good of the mind. <laughs> when the mind is able, through acts of intellect, to conform itself to reality um, and possess being in that mode, the mode that belongs to the intellect, then the good of the intellect is attained, namely the possession of truth. Now, if you think about what it would mean to possess God in his essence, in your intellect, right? Um, if you just try to think about that on a very general philosophical level, um, then you're thinking about the possession of being unqualified, right? So in a way, like, there's nothing left for you to know. Now, you can't imagine reaching that condition now. <laughs> uh, no matter how much you know, um, there's always going to be, like, more for you to know. You're not going to exhaust that. Um, but if you see God in his essence, then there's nothing left for you to know, right? And so your intellect is completely actualized as the kind of capacity that it is. Um, and of course, the kind of capacity that it is, um, is the capacity to grasp the essences of things, right? To know what a thing is. That's really the job of the intellect. And again, that is a conformity to reality. Um, to know the essences of things is to understand their being, right? Um, and Aquinas also thinks you have a natural desire to know, right? Um, that's not something that somebody teaches you, right? A proper education doesn't teach you to desire to know, right? A proper education is one that cultivates that natural desire in the right direction. 
um, and that also doesn't like mutilate and destroy it the way that a lot of education does. Um, but that's a different talk. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this natural desire to know, and Aquinas also talks about it as the natural desire to know the causes of things. And um, here, of course, he um, is happy to quote Aristotle, which I have on the handout. This is the wonderful, amazing, beautiful beginning to Aristotle's metaphysics, uh, which is uh, like some of the best philosophy ever. All men by nature desire to know. This is um, towards the bottom of page two. All men by nature desire to know, and an indication of this is the delight we take in our senses. For even apart from their usefulness, they are loved for themselves, and above all other, the sense of sight. For not only with view to action, but when we are not going to do anything, we prefer seeing to anything else. The reason is that the reason is this: uh, that most of all the senses, it makes us know things and brings to light many differences between things. That's what vision does, according to Aristotle. Um, I think you could sort of meditate on that passage for years <laughs> and still not fully understand it. Um, but yeah, there is this, um, there is in this tradition an interesting priority of vision. Um, and of course, when Aquinas is talking about contemplation, he, um, he goes back and forth between talking about study, uh, but mostly he's talking about vision, right? Um, and and I think it's worth paying attention to that and thinking about why. Um, but this this natural desire to know, um, which leads to the kind of wonder and delight that is the beginning of philosophy, um, which is the beginning of wisdom. Um, Aquinas wants to cash this out in terms of knowing the causes of things, right? Because what we're what we're first acquainted with is effects. And when we see effects, right, we have a desire, I think Father Thomas Joseph was saying something like this earlier, you know, we have a desire to know the causes. And as we, uh, and it turns out that we're not really satisfied, um, even again at the level of nature, we're not really satisfied until we get to something like a first cause, right? Um, so we, we, as it were, keep asking, this question about why, right? Until we can go all the way back to something like a first cause. Um, and this, this kind of natural desire to know um, is good, right? And it's the basis of, um, it's the basis of the contemplative life. It's the basis of a, of a good and happy life. Um, but it's also the ground of our claims about happiness, right? Because again, happiness is tied to nature and ends and goods. Okay. Um, I guess I'll just read this lovely passage from 3.8. Um, Final and perfect happiness can consist in nothing else than the vision of the divine essence. First, because man is not perfectly happy so long as something remains for him desire. Something remains for him to seek and to desire. 
Second, the perfection of any power is determined by the nature of its object. Now the object of the intellect is what a thing is, the essence of a thing. Wherefore, the intellect attains its perfection insofar as it knows the essences of things. When man knows an effect and knows that it has a cause, there naturally remains in the man the desire to know about the cause of what it is. This desire is one of wonder and causes inquiry, right? So then perfect happiness, for perfect happiness, the intellect needs to reach the very essence of the first cause. So it's not enough to just know that there has to be a first cause, right? So well, that's the beginning of the Summa, <laughs> the five ways. It's not enough to know that. It's good to know that. <clears throat> it's clarifying. It's rational knowledge. But it's not enough to know that, right? The intellect needs to reach the essence of the first cause if the job of the intellect is to know the essences of things. Thus, it will have its perfection as intellect through union with God as with that object in which alone man's happiness consists. Okay. Um, <clears throat> so now I want to skip really, really, really far ahead um, to about question 179 to 182. Um, <clears throat> this is after Aquinas has talked about all the cardinal virtues and he's like talking about prophecy and some stuff like that. Um, so now he's going to talk about the contemplative and the active life. One thing that I find really interesting and, and wonderful, and actually, um, if you go to the Thomistic Institute podcast, Zena Hicks has a couple of lectures about this, and I highly recommend them to you. She also has a book, um, The Hidden Pleasures of the Intellectual Life, which I also highly recommend to you. Um, where she uh, develops this theme. But what I find interesting is that Aquinas's exemplars of the contemplative and the active life are women. Um, you never really see anything like that in pagan philosophy. Um, but the, the main contrast is between like Martha as, you know, the exemplar of the active life and Mary, right? Mary, the mother of God, as the exemplar of the contemplative life. And if you have time to go to the National Gallery while you're here in DC, um, you will notice many lovely artistic depictions of the Annunciation. And in, I believe, 99% of them, <laughs> Mary is interrupted in study right, by the angel Gabriel with this proposition. Um, <clears throat> she is almost always studying. Um, sometimes the context of her study also looks like prayer, like maybe she's contemplating the Psalms or something. It looks like a little medieval prayer book. Um, but sometimes she's just hanging out and reading. Um, anyway, I, I find this it's very interesting. Um, so, so that's point one, just that he thinks Mary um, is 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 a, is a kind of exemplar of the contemplative life. And the only thing that I've, I'm I'm not going to give a lecture on that. You can listen to Zena's lectures on it. 
But I but I think it suggests, you know, like Mary is not a scholar. <laughs> you know. Um she's not an academic. She's not writing works of theology. And yet she is the exemplar of a contemplative life. It's worth thinking really hard about that. Um and what that might mean about what contemplation uh really is. Um, okay, so Aquinas asks here, question 180, does the contemplative life have anything to do with the affections, or does it pertain wholly to the intellect? Um, <clears throat> now, this, I think, is a really interesting and important question, and I like the way that Aquinas answers it, right? Um, so he says, look, I mean, first he wants to explain the difference. It's pretty basic. The contemplative life is the life lived by those who are especially intent on contemplating the truth, right? It's not that like that's all they do, which would be impossible anyway, uh, but they're especially intent on it or they're especially ordered to that end. Um, and then the active life is, is just by contrast, the life that is more, um, more ordered to external actions and getting things done. Right. Um, so it would be really weird to think of like a politician as a contemplative. Um, you know, like they're they're just obviously in a vocation that's especially um, engaged in the active life. So he also says here, intention is an act of the will, which it is, uh, because intention is of the end, right? Which is the object of the will. Consequently, the contemplative life, as regards the essence of the action, pertains to the intellect. But as regards the motive cause of the exercise of that action, it belongs to the will, which moves all the other powers, even the intellect, to their respective actions. So the contemplative life consists in the love of God inasmuch as through loving God, we are aflame to gaze on his beauty. And since everyone delights when he obtains what he loves, it follows that the contemplative life terminates in delight, which is seated in the affective power, the result being that this love also becomes more intent. So I think this is really important. I think this is like something that's really important about Thomas's um, moral psychology in general, that he thinks um, the will and the intellect um, are interdependent in all of these interesting ways. Um, so, right, um, we know that the will depends on the intellect to get its object, like that which it's going to go after. Um, but here now, Aquinas is telling us, um, and here he's repeating, um, some claims that he's made in the treatise on man and the treatise on human acts, he's telling us that the will directs all the other powers of the soul to their operations. Um, and it does that in several ways. Now, the way that principally interests me, given our topic, is the way that the will directs our attention to objects of contemplation, right? Um, whatever situation I find myself in, even a situation of study, 
forgets that when I talk about studiosity tests and curiosity tests, but even in a situation of study, I direct my attention, right? Like I can look at you and then I can look at you, <laughs> right? I can, I can pay attention uh, to one thing over another. Um, I can notice like this is salient to me in these circumstances as opposed to noticing that. Um, and, you know, how does that get cashed out? Well, Aquinas just simply says um, the will, right, intends that the intellect look at this or that. And whenever we're talking about intention, we're talking about the good, right? So I'm looking at you, right, because I want your attention. Um, or I'm like really trying to look at everyone somehow, which is impossible. Um, this is something, this is a movement of the will um, that's actually really critical for the contemplative life, right? Because if the contemplative life is about the contemplation of truth, um, well, look in some generic sense. Anytime I pay attention to anything, I have some commerce, I have some intellectual commerce with being, right? And I have some modicum of truth. Um, however, arguably some things are more worthy of my attention than others, right? Some things are arguably never worthy of my attention. Maybe pornography is like that. It's never worthy of my attention. I should never be paying attention to it. Um, and, and I think this idea that um, we need to we need to know where to direct our attention, right? Um, is something that Aquinas returns to again and again. It comes up in his discussion of negligence, right? Because when you're negligent in the moral life, which Aquinas thinks you are all the time, um, and that you incur the guilt of sin when you're negligent, even when that means you didn't do anything. But it's Aquinas characterizes it as a failure of um, it's a failure of practical reason. It's a failure to pay attention to what was needful of your attention in the circumstances, right? But that demands a kind of prudence to know, right? You have to know the good. You have to know what's worthy of your attention. Um, and that too, for Aquinas, will be part of the contemplative life. Um, do we need moral virtue for the contemplative life? Um, here again, the answer is yes and no. Um, no, because the contemplative life really is just the contemplation of truth. And Aquinas says, um, and he cites Aristotle when he says this, he says this, the contemplation of truth, has little influence on moral virtue. Um, I want to bracket that and return to it. Um, I'm not totally convinced um, that that's true. Um, but yes, because the act of contemplation is hindered both by, um, is hindered by the impetuosity of the passions. And since the moral virtues are charged specifically with getting the passions under control and habituating them so that they listen to reason, um, yeah, you need moral virtues, um, especially chastity, he says, for the contemplative life. 
Okay. Um, and then he, in 180.4, he gives a nod to St. Augustine again. Um, St. Augustine says that in the study of creatures, we must not exercise an empty and futile curiosity, but should make them the stepping stones to things unperishable and everlasting. Um, this is really, really important uh, when um, St. Thomas talks about studiositas, which I'm going to call the virtue of attention, and curiositas, which is its opposing vice. Um, so I'll skip over the role of charity in the contemplative life just because um, I'm looking at the time and want to be mindful of it. Um, but when you're going back to contemplate this handout later today, uh, just notice that Aquinas thinks that charity urges on our contemplation of God. Um, and that is um, obviously charity perfects the will. Okay, but now I want to go back to the treatise on temperance. Um, and to talk about intellectual temperance. Aquinas thinks there's a kind of intellectual temperance called studiositas, um, which I think my friend Zena Hitz calls the virtue of seriousness. Um, but you also might think of it as, um, I don't know, a virtue that is especially important to contemplating well. Um, so, Studiositas is intellectual temperance, and the idea is that this natural desire that we have for knowledge, like all desire, it's good, but like all desire, it also needs to be regulated by a virtue. And that, so that is to say, it too, this natural desire to know, can become disordered and corrupt and perverted. And so part of what it is to have a good study life, to study well, to have a good education, is to cultivate this virtue of studiositas. Um, so we not only must study and contemplate reality and contemplate truth and search for the causes of things, but we must study what is truly important, Aquinas says, and with a view to wisdom. And that means above all that we need to be trying to achieve some kind of synoptic vision of the whole, right? So we don't want to get bogged down at the level of particulars, but we want to try to have some kind of synoptic vision of the whole. And Aquinas is really clear that there is a difference between virtuous and unvirtuous inquiry. Um, and studiositas basically assures the moral rectitude of what he calls the studium. And Aquinas's concept of study, I think, is really fascinating um, because it is more capacious than our notion of study. Um, and, I, and I think that it's better. So his uh, definition is study is vehemens applicatio mentis ad aliquid. Um, it's any, however you want to translate vehemens, like um, intent. Um, like um, animated intent um, application of the mind to something. It's really any purposeful application of the mind. Okay, it's not just like I'm studying geometry or I'm studying calculus or I'm studying philosophy. It's any purposeful application of the mind. 
Um, so really it's this idea of attention, right? I'm just gonna freely adopt this, um, this vocabulary of attention, paying attention to things. That's, that kind of hits on Aquinas' idea of study. And um, so he thinks that this is an appetite that we have um, to pay attention to things, to know things, um, but that we have to curb or moderate it in accordance with what is really good, right? So we have to have some vision about what is worthy of our attention. Um, I'm gonna turn to the Summa now and look at it. Um, so maybe, it, um, maybe it's best to start with um, curiosity, which is the vice. Um, and here he really is getting this from St. Augustine. If you, I know some of you have read the Confessions. Remember the part where Olypius um, goes to the, gladi the, um, the gladiator games? And look, he doesn't want to go. It's kind of like another example in the Confessions of peer pressure, but he ends up going and he's, he's hoping that he can resist it. But as soon as he opens his eyes and looks at what's going on in the gladiator games, he's just like, oh, I was drunk with the madness of it and I was completely given over. And you know, he's just totally into it. Um, he's into the spectacle, right? He gets totally consumed by the spectacle. And, um, St. Augustine and, and also St. Thomas, you know, they connect this with the natural desire to know things, right? Um, you know, there's a reason why he gets consumed, um, but it's also bad and it has deleterious moral effects. And I think that's what really interests me is how, whether or not you're studying well, right? Whether or not you're attending to the right things in the right way has moral effects has affective effects, has an effect in the moral life, such that study, like study is good, right? But study might also go really wrong, right? Um, and then we have to be careful to pay attention to the ways that it can go wrong. Now, if you look at um, question 167, article one, Aquinas talks about ways that your study can go wrong. Um, and the first way that study can go wrong is you can just neglect things that you ought to be studying, right? So you can be reading like detective novels and um, romance novels instead of like Madame Bovary, which you obviously should be reading. Um, and um, or you can be, he talks about like divinations, like you want to know the sort of things that like demons can tell you, I obviously shouldn't do that. Um, but the third one is the one that really interests me. When a man desires to know the truth about creatures without referring his knowledge to its due end, namely the knowledge of God. Hence Augustine says that in studying creatures, we must not be moved by empty and perishable curiosity. We should even, but we should ever mount towards immortal and abiding things. Um, this one really interests me because it suggests, it strongly suggests that the contemplative life, that right study in this capacious sense, right? So not just whatever studying you're doing at Yale, which I'm sure is great, um, 
not just the studying you were doing in preparation to get into Yale at your high school, um, but study in this more capacious sense, right, of the purposeful, intentful application of the mind to something, to some reality. Um, that when we do that, we only do it well when we order that back to God. Um, and I think that um, that's, that's a very powerful suggestion because it suggests that when we study the essences of things, when we are looking and paying attention to reality, right, we can never forget, right, the end to which that must be ordered, right, to our final good. Um, and if we forget that, that is when curiositas, right, is likely to take over. And I think that um, another thing that Aquinas is suggesting here is that there's a certain amount of prudence necessary for the contemplative life, right? Um, there, there is, in fact, um, a necessity for the contemplative life to um, be regulated by the sort of virtues that we associate with the active life. And so, sure, we can make a distinction between them, but we cannot lose sight of the fact that they are related. And that goes back to the fact that we cannot lose sight of how intellect and desire are related and how the will directs our attention, right, in accordance with its own proper object, which is the universal good or God. Um, so um, I want to skip. So there's a bunch of Iris Murdoch on your handout, which I don't have time to get to. Um, it's just great. You can contemplate it later. I'm happy to talk about it. But I, I do want to just briefly talk about the Simone Bay. Um, Simone Weil has this amazing essay called Reflections on the Right Use of School Studies with a View to the Love of God, which you should read. You should definitely just put it at the top of your must-read list. Um, and she's picking up on exactly this point in Augustine and St. Thomas about how proper study and Simone Weil um, is just really beautiful and wonderful in her reflections on attention in the moral life and the need for a good attention as opposed to bad intention, attention, sorry. Um, so she basically thinks that in study, right, we develop a kind of lower attention that becomes the stop of prayer. So when, and Simone Bain and all of her writings on prayer, she connects prayer with attention um, and she says, you know, prayer is just when your whole attention is turned towards God. However, she's also constantly talking about how hard this is, how hard it is to pray. It's easy to pray poorly, right? Um, but it's actually very difficult to pray well. And she thinks that if you do not cultivate your attention, um, the attention that you give to your study, but also the attention that you give to the world and to other people, if you don't order it to prayer, right, your spiritual life will suffer and therefore your moral life will suffer because your intimacy with God won't be there. Um, but she also talks about, and this picks up another note from Augustine and Aquinas, and that is the connection between contemplation and joy or delight. 
And so she says, like, look, your studies aren't really going well unless you're enjoying them, right? Um, and I just invite you to read what she's saying there and to think about it, um, because I think it is deeply and importantly connected to what St. Thomas is saying about contemplation as the highest good, as study, as very important, but needing a certain kind of, um, a certain kind of character. You need a certain kind of character to approach your studies well. Um, and I think this is, um, I, I now wanna say something about friendship. Um, I want you to think really seriously, especially within the context of your TI group, about the importance of intellectual friendships, right? Where intellectual friendship is just this idea that um, you're helping one another to study well together, together, right? Friends share one life together. Um, and then what you do, right, in the TI context, in this life of study and contemplating, um, I want you to think about how it is ordered um, to your final end, to your happiness, what it would take for that study to be going well. And why is it that friends are necessary, right, to the study going well? Um, and I have a lot of thoughts about this, but I'm also over time, so maybe we can talk more about it in the q and I'm, I'm done. Thank you for your attention. Sort of like nature does nothing in vain kind right. of thing. Yeah. yeah. The issue I find is that I find it very difficult to argue this to people who don't believe in God because I think the issue may be that it's difficult for us to believe that our desires can be fulfilled and we've never experienced them being fulfilled. Like I think mm -hmm. if somebody had been perpetually hungry and had never had food to satisfy mm -hmm. their hunger, they may not Mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of weird to think of, but yeah. that's kind of the way I see it. So do you think that there is a way to prove to people that they, first of all, have this innate desire for perfect happiness, and secondly, that there is an end to that happiness that exists? Yeah, so, I mean, prove is said in many ways. And I think that um, I wouldn't I wouldn't go straight to the most general, you know, because I think, and I wouldn't, and therefore I wouldn't go straight to happiness. And one of the reasons why I wouldn't is because it, it almost always turns out that what you're saying as a Thomist and a Catholic about happiness just is not, not at all making contact with whatever they're thinking happiness is. So it's like, it's a useless word, basically. I think happiness has become an utterly useless word 
And all we can do is hope that the artists can recover, you know, maybe the poets can recover it for us. I don't know. But um, it's just been so dragged through the muck at this point. Um, but I mean, like in, in a philosophical context, I just talk about eudaimonia because it's like a Greek word. So like maybe it just conjures up something different. I mean eudaimonia. Um, <laughs> Not this sullied happiness um, that the utilitarians are on about. Um, or I just use a different word. I just talk about human flourishing or I talk about living well. You know? And so I'd probably switch to the vocabulary, you know, talk about flourishing. Um, so, how do you prove to people that they have a natural desire to flourish? Um, I don't know. I mean, I just think um, you start from, I'm just an Aristotelian, so I just think you got to start with the particular, and then, you know, you can reach the universal at some point. Um, but you can start with their particular desires, and then, you know, you can say things like, well, isn't it weird that, like, all people in all cultures um, have had some mediated form of that. Like, yeah, it took different cultural forms, and some of them are weirder than others, but, like, isn't it weird how, like, every culture has something like a family? Why would that be? Oh, maybe it has something to do with, like, the way we give birth, which is totally bizarre, by the way. Um, and, you know, just, like, get them... It's sort of like a Socratic thing you have to do, um, where you just sort of lovingly coax the truth out of them over time. Um, because if you just give them like an argument, um, the older, you know, like when I was young, like, which was a long time ago now, but when I was young and I was like really gung-ho about philosophy, um, I just drove everyone in my family nuts um, also, because I was gung ho about Catholicism and they were like, what? But um, I would just like always, I'd be like, here's the argument. And my argument was beautiful. And it never, it didn't do anything but annoy people. Um, and it took me a, a long time to realize, to give up on this strategy as really terrible. <laughs> um, and I think just, as I've gotten older and, and I've spent a lot of time teaching and I've made a lot of mistakes and I've annoyed a lot of people, I just think I've switched to a more Socratic method where you start by talking about some particular thing with somebody and then you lead them without them really realizing it, you know, to something ever more general. This is the kind of thing that takes practice, you know, you. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that takes practice, and at first you'll probably be bad at it. But, um, you know, it's like riding a bike. You just have to keep doing it. You have to fall down a lot before you learn how to ride it. Um, but I think this is a lot um, more fruitful. Yeah, just start with their particular desires and see if you can get them to recognize something general, so the human in them. And then eventually you go to the most general. Yes. Oh, I'm not supposed to. Sorry. <laughs> Stepping out of bounds. <laughs> um.
the talk. Um, so my question was, um, at least in kind of contemporary ethical discourse, it seems like the primary standard bearers of a generally Aristotelian approach to natural law are- Wait, what? Are, sorry, like Thomistic. Wait, you're saying that generally moral theorists have a Thomistic approach? No, I said in, oh. in contemporary debates and stuff, the huh. primary standard bearers are um, kind of like John Finnis, Robert George, the New Natural Law. Oh. And they're very adamant that, although in a lot of respects they claim to be the more attentive um, interpreters of Aquinas, but they are very adamant that you can't say that they're like the highest good. Yeah, and they're wrong. And so, <laughs> I mean, oh Lord! I mean, look, one of my best friends is a new natural law guy. Um, so this is like my life. I haven't convinced him yet. I mean, so obviously, I don't uh, have a knockdown argument. Otherwise, I would have given it by now. But um, I mean, look, I think the, the, that's a conclusion that follows from a whole lot of presuppositions, which are questionable, and I would rather go to those, right? So there is a, just re, in the new natural law theorists, there is a rejection of the beautiful Aristotelian ideal that, you know, ethics comes from nature, right? They they really have no use for natural teleology. Um, and so everything gets thrown up into a kind of quasi-Kantian register, right? In which um, it's all about reason, right? And nature is something different than reason um, and like doesn't matter to it. Um, and that's a kind of modern dichotomy that is just alien to the thought of St. Thomas and Aristotle. And I think that, um, and so, you know, they think that metaphysics just like has nothing to do with ethics. And I think that's incorrect, right? But I think you have to go way back to their arguments for this, which I think all turn out to be bad arguments and engage them on that level. Um, but that, I mean, that's where, because the stuff about the incommensurability of the basic goods um, is a problem that would be solved with proper metaphysics, I think. Yeah. Um, to take NC privilege for a second, I have a friend who's a very close friend with the natural lawyers, and she said, <laughs> it's funny because they, their explanation of the world or their theories are about all goods are incommensurable, but they live like Thomists. Like they treat things in their life, like there's one thing that's most important and every, all the other goods are ordered by that. So. Yeah, so yeah, like I mean, yeah. And I, I just want to say to any of the new natural law listeners out there that I love you. And also, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I mean, the friend that I have in mind is, is, is like a saint. So, I mean, you know, we, we can argue about these things and it's important, um, but it, yeah, it doesn't really seem to prevent anyone from one, having the right conclusions, the right moral conclusions.
conclusions. Like we all basically agree about all that stuff. Um, at least the practical stuff. Okay, now I'm thinking of a few things we've done. Whatever. <laughs> There's a lot of agreement. Um, and you know, yeah, they're very good people. Hello. 